Hello and welcome to Walk in the Shadowlands podcast. Let me be your guide as we take a walk into the shadowy realms of the unexplained, the paranormal, of things that go bump in the night and haunt your dreams. Your host? I'm Marianne, and I would like to welcome you to our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, today, whatever time it is, wherever you are living in this beautiful world of ours. So sit back, relax, and let me be your guide as we walk into the Shadowlands together and discover what awaits us there. New Zealand is a very small country, consisting of two main islands, the north and the south. We also are a relatively new country and so don't have the history that Great Britain, European countries or even the USA does. But despite our relative newness, we do have a large number of paranormal encounters of the spirit and things that go bump in the night kind. Because of this, we have our fair share of people who want to investigate or experience or explain these events to their own satisfaction, or who simply want the thrill of experiencing the unknown. My guest tonight is one such person. Actually, when I was first considering creating this podcast, and who would be interesting for people to listen to, tonight's guest was the very first person who came to my mind when considering the paranormal field of study. I've been following his group and page for some time, partly because of professional courtesy as I also run my own paranormal investigation group called Shadowlands Paranormal Investigations. That website is linked from this episode's page on my podcast website, www.walkingtheshadowlands.com. And simply because I like and really appreciate his approach to this work and I love his subtle and a bit dry sense of humour, which is something that is quite necessary when working with people and especially in this field. So with that, I'm very excited to begin this week's journey into this part of the Shadowlands. So grab your cup of tea and your bicky and let's begin. I'm very excited to introduce my guest for this episode. His name is James Gilbert. James was born in 1963 and currently lives in Wellington, New Zealand, with his artist wife, Denise Durkin, and their cat, Leo. He is a professional photographer by day, running a very successful photography gallery from Courtney Place in Wellington City called Photospace. This gallery is one of New Zealand's few specialist photographic art galleries. James's hobbies include playing the drums in various bands over the years, from the post-punk era 1981 to his current band Cosmo Zero, Paranormal Investigations and authoring several books, with likely more to come at some stage, I imagine. James has twice been a guest speaker at Paracon Australia, and his special area of the paranormal, which fits in with his profession, is trying to explain photographs that may show paranormal phenomena. He is co-author with Joe Davey of a really interesting book, which I have personally read twice now, called Spooked, Exploring the Paranormal in New Zealand. 
The book chronicles the Stranger Currences crew as they search for the truth behind the dark stories of some of New Zealand's most infamous haunted sites. In exploring the nature of ghosts, the team has interviewed mediums, psychics, fellow paranormal investigators, skeptics and a parapsychologist. They look at the history of paranormal research and delve into the then existing science. We will be talking about this book during the episode. James has also authored two other books, Edwin J. Smith, Paranormal Investigator, Scraper, a novel about punk. All of his books are listed on the podcast episode page of the website, so you can check them out for yourselves if interested. And he has also edited a book on photography called Fiat Lux, 51 Photographs by Andrew Ross. As if that all is not enough, James is founding member and leader of the Strange Occurrences Paranormal Investigation Group based in Wellington, New Zealand. The group was first formed in 2005 and over the years has slowly evolved into what it currently is today, with new members added from the original eight. All of the eight original members personally had experiences that they were unable to attribute to normal or any known natural causes, which was what prompted their interest in this field. So, here is James. Thanks very much for joining us today, James. I've been really looking forward to our conversation. Yes, yeah, same. We had an exhibition opening last Thursday. A lot of people turned up. So we run uh, photographic exhibitions there. Photography has been my way into the paranormal, I guess. Big, big part of it all. what kind of started off the paranormal investigation group, the uh, photography angle. Right. I've actually read your book twice and I really liked it. I have a few things marked in there that stuck out to me when I reread it in preparation for this conversation. I was really impressed with this book and I thought you guys did an awesome job. Perhaps you might like to tell the listeners how you got into this field of paranormal research to begin with. Well, I think like many people in the paranormal field, my interest started off as a young teenager. Um, I'm talking about the 1970s in my case. I'm quite old. So <laughs> on TV, like it seemed like every Saturday night, if it wasn't the Osmond family, it was like Yuri Gallo was on the television a lot. He was bending forks and spoons, and he claimed to be doing so by psychic power. And uh, I find I find him very interesting. There was also those Eric von Daniken films, you know, about the um, visitors from space. And uh, I read a book called Supernature by Lyle Watson, which really sparked my interest in it was science, but it was outside the normal realms of what would be considered science. So I read all those books. I didn't do anything very much about it. And I guess in my mid-20s, I started to have some interesting experiences. Um, the, um, you know, th things, a few odd things happened, which I don't particularly want to talk about. It was so long ago. But they made me worry a little bit, a little bit, a bit about my mental health. And I'm sure that, a lot of people who experience paranormal events or things that could be paranormal, there's always that worry that maybe it's just going on inside your head and you can't control it. So um, it was interesting, but I tried to sort of shut that down. Um, I didn't want it to happen. Um, and kind of kind of progressively switched, switched it off. Um, I don't know if I have any particular psychic abilities or anything like that. I probably don't, but enough things happen that 
you know, I got a bit scared and a bit worried. And I thought, no, I don't want this to happen. So I progressively shut it down and it kind of stopped. And then um, the the spooked book, the prologue, there's a, quite an account of an event that happened to Denise, who I'm now married to, and myself in Wanganui. Um, it was such a scary event. I, w- I won't relate it all because it is in the book. And also, if you look up the book and you go to uh, whatever it's on Amazon, I guess, you can read this whole account for free. You know, it, it starts off. It's probably better that you read it than I tell it. It was very scary. And it was so scary that we had to flee this particular hotel in the middle of the night. We were just terrified and shaking and crying, and we just had to leave. Um, we didn't get back to Wellington until like five o'clock in the morning, and only then did we begin to calm down. I mean, we're talking about a really upsetting event, and still can't really, with all my kind of scepticism and the rest of it, I can't really explain it. It's not something that's easily explainable in normal terms, and I haven't been able to sort of write it off as, oh, it's such and such, you know? And having that experience, and Denise had it too, we we simultaneously experienced this Mm. attack, it seemed like. Um, That one, it gave us greater sympathy and understanding for people that have experienced... um, unusual, unexplainable things. We know what it's like to actually be quite terrified. Right. It's that once, and frankly, I don't want to experience it again. <laughs> once was plenty. Um, and two, it's sort, sort of so to see, because there was no one we'd go and talk to. You know, we're not, we're not church people. We're not religious. Had we have been church people, you'd probably go and talk to your minister or your priest and say, look, this happened. But we, we didn't have that, so we're just sort of on our own, and there didn't seem to be anybody to approach about it. That that changed. This was in beginning of 1999, I think New Year's Day, 98 or 99, a long time ago. It wasn't until 2000 and I'm going to say late 2005, me and Mark Marriott had this sort of crazy idea of forming this paranormal group from you know, from a few things coming together, we saw those taps guys on TV. We thought, sitting there watching it at midnight on TV2 or whatever it was on. And I said, hey, you know, we could do this. And Denise, like, oh no, you know, <laughs> surely not. But Denise was recruited in pretty quickly. And suddenly there's four of us and we started this paranormal group. And we didn't do anything much for a while, maybe six months. We just put up a website and we had a few meetings, but nothing really happened. And then kind of come Halloween or whatever it was, there's a suddenly the newspaper's interested, we're in the paper, it was quite a big feature. And suddenly, like, we're getting calls. You know, people are wanting to know stuff. A few people have seen any photos for analysis. And we got to do a couple of investigations. And a short time after that, yeah, a couple of other groups formed in our area, um, one in Wellington and one in Palmerston North. And... Um, particularly the Palmerston North group that was called Phoenix Paranormal. We did a lot of investigations with them. They were better at getting investigations than we were. Um, so they invited us along and that we we did some good stuff. Um, 
upcountry, Napier, Waipukarau, Wanganui. You know, we, we did various investigations up around central Lower North Island. We really cut our teeth. Um, we learned a lot and we had a good time doing it and we met some really nice people along the way and that continued for a while. Um, unfortunately, I don't want to dwell on this because it's kind of negative, but there were some quite negative people also in the paranormal community and some of those people contributed to things breaking down a bit. Yeah. So that run came to an end and um, in a good way, not a bad way. But we, we were starting to get our own investigations going in Wellington by then. And TV and newspaper and radio were interested. Um, there weren't very many paranormal groups in the country at the time. And they would come to us as well as some of the other groups and want to do stories, features. So we got on Radio New Zealand a couple of times. Um, got in the newspaper a couple of times, both local and regional. And uh, TVNZ got a bit interested. TV3 got a bit interested. And, you know, they want to do those things. And, you know, to be honest, you know, some of it's a bit of a leg pull. I mean, it's not it's not that serious. And they would do funny little graphics and run the Ghostbusters theme and stuff like that. And, they, oh, you know, doing that again, how original. But we quite like the coverage because it, you know, I'm, I'm a self-confessed media whore, so. When I was reading your story of the encounter in the hotel that got you into this field, I got the impression that you might have picked something up from that church you photographed before you got to the hotel. Yeah, well, that's that's what we think as well. Mm. Um, on the way down to Wanganui, we, we drove down from Ruapehu. We'd been at the Chateau. I played in a covers band at the time, and we'd done this gig up the Chateau which was really good, but it was like six hours and we didn't finish till two or three in the morning. We were really tired. Um, so we le left the next day and we thought, well, instead of driving all the way back to Wellington, let's just make a bit of a trip of it. So we went to the train crash place. Um, so on the way from the Chateau, we drove around the base of the mountain and we visited the scene of the Tangiwai disaster, which was a very bad train crash I think it was New Year's Eve in, I'm going to say 1953, Queen Elizabeth was in the country. She'd just been crowned and her job was to read on the radio the names of all the people that died in that, that tragedy. It was on Christmas Eve. It was really bad before my time. So we visited that site and it's, it's quite, it is quite a haunting place to go to with the river coming down from the mountain. And then we drove into Ratahi and, as you drive in, there's a old church on the hill. And I'd seen a nice photo of it. And I thought, yeah, I'd, I'd like to take a photo, but I'd like to get a little closer and just go up and see the church. And what I didn't realize, I didn't want to just hop over the fence. So we went around the front and we asked permission. And it involved going onto a marae. So I kind of rocked up with Denise with my camera and said, hey, you know, do you mind if we go up and take photos of the church? And there were three older men sitting there on the marae and they, they kind of looked at each other and looked a bit dubious, but they said, yeah, it's okay. So, okay, good. We'll take, we'll, we went up there. And, you know, to be honest, the whole thing just didn't feel right. Mm. 
sometimes you just sort of know that you're transgressing or trans- even though they said it was okay, sort of wasn't. Yeah. We went up there. I took a few photos and I was pretty uncomfortable. So we left pretty, pretty quickly. And then we drove down from Ratahi down to Whanganui. And uh, it's, it's quite a strange route, kind of heavy and overcast and there's nothing else on the road. Finally get to Whanganui. The place was deserted. It was quiet. And the whole trip just seemed strange, like we're a little bit in another time. You know, it just, there was nobody else about. And uh, it was just odd, you know, it was not like any other car trip. And it did seem like we might have transgressed on that Marae. And, uh, you know, this was like late last century. Um, maybe I wasn't as aware of those things as we've become nowadays. You know, we're maybe more attuned to to Maori culture but it, it, I wonder if that was what it was because this thing in the hotel room that kind of frankly came at us in the middle of the night I thought it was a, a man dressed in black a dark um, figure Denise thought it was a big dog and as it turns out you know a large black dog is often like a spiritual guardian so if you transgress, if you break a tapu, it's said that a, a black dog can be the protector of that tapu and it can it can avenge it itself. Do you know what I mean? I'm not yeah. that very clearly, but maybe that's what it was. Yeah. There are black dog um, stories from all around the world. And actually near the end of the book, we met a parapsychologist from England who... Simon, get his name, sorry, but he was traveling around New Zealand going to places and he met us, he came on an investigation with us, which was really cool. And uh, he was studying black dog stories from different cultures, including New Zealand. So that was his personal sort of hobby, his personal hobby interest to, to find out these stories about black dogs. So I guess we had one of those for him, at least in Eastern. Yeah, that's quite interesting about your guest. When I first read your book, that was my very first impression. That hit me straight away. As soon as, as soon as I saw the photograph, without even reading your experience, Mm -hmm. it was like, oh, they took something with them from there. And I could feel it straight away. Yeah, I could feel it. It's interesting because it took us a while to, I won't say come to that conclusion, but it took us a while to consider that as a, as a strong possibility. I don't really have any conclusions. don't know what it was, but I'd say that's a strong possibility. And it's interesting that you've got that feeling about it just from the photos. Yeah, just from the photo, from the first time I read your book, even before I got to your experience later on, as soon as I saw that photo, as soon as I saw that photo, I thought... Oh, there's something just not, something just doesn't feel right about that. So yeah, that was really interesting. And I found that to be quite fascinating. I'm going to put a link on this episode's webpage on the www.walkingtheshadowlands.com podcast website to your book on Amazon. And hopefully you'll get people visiting it. The book is no longer available in print, um, or so I'm told. I bet there's a whole pile of boxes of them in a warehouse somewhere, but, you know, I was trying to get some more copies, but I can't get them. So it's only available as a digital book now. Oh, wow. Well, a digital book is still a book, isn't it? The book, yeah, and I get paid if they sell a copy. Yeah. 
good. So does Joe Davey, the co-author of the book. Yeah. The digital book's good. It's also cheaper than the hard copy. It crops up on trade me occasionally and then secondhand bookshop. It's kind of kind of funny to see that, but if you see it on trade me, you can pick it up for ten or fifteen dollars. I know. I paid forty dollars for mine. Good, good, because I got some of that. But if someone buys it on trade me, I don't get anything. But it's just it's getting hard to find now. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. If they get enough requests for it, maybe they might. Maybe the publishers might redo it. Well, I'll tell you what. I doubt if they'll reprint it, but you never know. But I'll tell you what, I still stand by everything in the book. And it's a wee while since we wrote it, but I reread it myself recently, you know, earlier this year, I guess. And I have learned a lot since then, but I don't want to retract anything. Do you know what I mean? Right, right, of course, because this is what you knew at the time, and we're always learning, and we're always learning new things. But I really like Spooked. I like the way you laid it out. I like the way that you go into the scientific aspect of it, and yet you don't discount the possibility that, well, of something else, you know? You're not so... uh, Well, I feel you have... I feel like you have a healthy balance in the book. That's really hard to maintain. Yeah. That balance is, you know, some people would just say you're sitting on the fence or you're refusing to commit one way or the other. Because, you know, I get it from both sides because right. I'm a mem- look, I'm a member of New Zealand Skeptics and I find that really interesting. There are a lot of really clever people, you know, and boy, if you want to know anything about anything scientific or medical, you know, you just ask about it on the Facebook group and there's all these people who just know about stuff. And, I mean, they're actually a nice bunch of people. But I would have to say maybe calling it a monoculture is a little bit harsh, but what I would say is a lot of people in Skeptics come from a similar background and perspective. Right. Um, I mean, it's not all bearded white men like me, but there's lots of women, but there's not many people outside of European culture, for example. Right. I don't think there are many, might be wrong, but I don't think there are many sort of artists, um, more scientists than artists. Right. So the, 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 they come from a place, and, you know, I think that's a good place, and it's one perspective, but it's far from the only perspective. And I understand that, about 15% of people on Earth, that's 1, 5, 15, a fraction of people on Earth actually share that rational, analytical perspective on life and, and the world. The other 85% have different perspective, and I think that's really interesting. Mm. You know, the 15% think they're right all the time. What about the other 85%? What about the other ways of looking at things? And that that intrigues me. Right. You get shot by both sides. I'm not saying the sceptics are shooting at me because they're not. They're actually quite accommodating of what I'm doing with the paranormal. But I also get shot at by people who are anti-sceptic. And I think because sceptics have a bad name, you know, the word has a bad connotation. People think that it means cynical. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, in some cases, for some people, it does mean cynical. Skeptics can be quite dismissive of people with other worldviews. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And 
it's it's hard to sit and maintain that balance and be on the one hand rational and kind of scientific and on the other hand be open and it's like you're standing on an edge and the wind is blowing you from both directions and you can sway one way and sway the other really easily that that's a difficult position to maintain it's a difficult balance and you know, sometimes when you're doing a paranormal investigation, you get pulled much more to the, if you like, the believing side that you you really have to be much more open because right. if you go in kind of hard-nosed skeptical, nothing will happen. You won't perceive anything. You won't notice anything. It just doesn't work. It's, it's difficult. Yes, it is a difficult thing to maintain, absolutely. Would you mind sharing for my listeners how you got involved with the Skeptical Society and how you spoke to them, because I think it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it's funny. I um, I joined um, out of curiosity, and I, I, I am with them on a lot of stuff. But, you know, that they were organizing a conference in Wellington and I thought, well, if I'm going to join this group, I might as well get involved in this. So I volunteered to be on the committee of people organizing the conference. And actually I didn't really end up doing very much, but you know, I was part of it and that's what counts. And we went to the meeting. It was in the back room of the hotel downtown. And as soon as I, I've got a beard and I'm a sort of middle-aged white male. So as soon as I rock up to the hotel concierge, concierge, he looks at me and says, ah, sir, the skeptics are meeting in the back room, which I thought was just hilarious. Because I look so much like one of them. As I go there and there's, you know, like nine or ten other bearded white men and, you know, a few women and and we we thrashed out ideas to get this conference to happen. And I, I sort of put my hand up and said, well, I'd quite like to speak. And that was one of the most terrifying. Everyone's terrified of, of public meetings, but speaking in front of, people with PhDs in various scientific and medical areas and that the really high IQ audience, right? And it was a little intimidating. And the only way to deal with it was with a bit of humor. Like if I came in dry and cold, I thought I'd probably get picked to pieces. And if I made, if I started talking about things that were too spiritual I didn't mention the Wanganui thing, for example, probably get picked to pieces. So I stuck to photography because I know about photography and I'm on solid ground. I, I have a deep and long understanding of it because I've been a photographer for 35 or something years um, and I have a degree in it. So it's something I know about and can talk about with, I think, equal authority to the other people in the room with their subjects. And it's only when I strayed off photography that people start to sort of pull their beards and mutter, you know, that oh, what's he talking about now? But I didn't stray very far off it in the end. I don't think the podcast is still up. I mean, there was a podcast of it for a while. I couldn't possibly listen to it. But it went well and I survived. And it was only by humour. And Mark Marriott, who's in our team, he's one of the founder members, had a great sense of humour. And that, that kind of rescued the situation. We, we did it like a, we blacked the room out and we walked in with our EMF meters and stuff pinging and twitching. 
and we, we sort of did a sweep of the room and we walked between all these people and uh, <laughs> Mark made some comment about, well, I'm not particularly anything paranormal, but there's an awful lot of scepticism in here. <laughs> it just cracked everyone up. That was a real good start. I thought that was absolutely brilliant because that would have broken the ice and they obviously took it the way you intended, which actually would have made them much more receptive to what you had to say to them. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, I think if if you come across as being too serious about it and you can't take a joke, you're just not going to last long because people are going to, you know, you're going to run into people who, you know, excuse the phrase, are going to pull the piss, right? Right, absolutely. So you're a part of the Skeptic Society. You do this work. And I know New Zealand's only a small place, so there's not really a lot of old places we can investigate here in New Zealand. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm very envious when I see these shows from the UK and also the East Coast of the United States where, you know, they've been around a couple of hundred and something years longer than we have and there's those very old places. But, you know, the oldest buildings that you'll ever go in in New Zealand that still stand are from about the 1860s or you might find something from the 1840s if you're really lucky. Yeah. Um, beyond that, you know, there's not much surviving Maori architecture but there are places and sites and like if, if you're in the UK it's going to be an old house or a castle or a church or a monastery or something in New Zealand there are not so many of those things so quite often it's out in the bush or it's down by the river or it's on a coastline it'll be in some outdoor location and you know the land holds its stories and you know, arguably there's 800 to 1,000 years of human habitation in New Zealand. So there's that length of history. Right. You know, remember that ghost hunt show on TV, the New Zealand one? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was kind of early days. It was before we were doing our investigation. And those guys didn't have a lot to go on in terms of how you do the stuff. Right. So I thought the investigations were a little undercooked, but what was quite cool about those shows is the people who did the research on the locations and they did a pretty good job of actually researching the history of the places and the paranormal accounts. And there's another book that came out after with a whole lot more um, stories around different New Zealand locations. And uh, I have the book over there. I can't quite read it from this distance, but um, I can probably give you the title of it. It's on the page on the Strange Occurrences website about other New Zealand books. There's a whole list. It's a really good resource. So if you were traveling down the west coast of South Island, for example, it just lists all these locations that have, you know, supposedly got ghosts or other strange things happened. And I want to go down and tick those off someday. Oh, I was just thinking that exact same thing. It would be really nice to have that as reference and just do a tour of New Zealand. Oh, well, when I win Lotto, eh? Do a tour of New Zealand and go and visit all these places. Totally. I mean, I want to do that too and uh, take my wife Denise with me. And yeah. Doing pictures while we're there. <laughs> that would be really brilliant. 
You know, one of the things I really enjoyed about your book, about your team investigations, was that your team always has their tea and bickies before any investigation starts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we're kind of, there's a lot of English people in the group. I mean, Denise is, is British originally, and Mark is British, and Karen has sort of British sensibilities, and um, Joe and... Joe Davy and Helen Gow when they joined, they were both Brits. So we've got, we've got, they had this sort of British thing going and Nick who joined later on. Um, he was even more skeptical than I am. And uh, it was this whole British thing going. And so, you know, the tea and biscuits was all kind of part of it. It, it also calms you down a bit. Yes. You sort of need to calm down a bit rather than drinking a lot of energy drinks and stuff and going out there like the Energizer Bunny. <laughs> yeah. um, we, we don't sort of do that. We're quite low-key. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't run and scream like that British woman on that most haunted show either, hopefully. But um, that was just craziness. But that used to be on TV all the time, you know. Yeah. But the American shows, they're really good, but they're kind of confrontational. Yes. I don't know what you, what do you think about that, um, Marianne. I don't like it. My attitude is you treat them with respect. You treat them as you would treat a living person. You talk to them respectfully. You are polite, you know, just how you would treat a living person. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. The, I was at work yesterday on that topic and, you know, I, I have customers and I'm mostly polite. Sometimes I get a bit ratty. But a guy came up. And he wanted an off Courtney place and he, he asked me a question and I just sort of started to answer him. And I'm not going to repeat, but he said, he kind of cursed something, said, oh, I'm going to go find someone who speaks English and just, he stormed out. And, you know, when he, when he sort of stormed out, I, I just, I'm not going to say it on this podcast, but I just said, oh, for sake, you know, after him, like I was just annoyed and he turned around and swore at me again and wandered off and, it was just this kind of brief encounter that was, he was rude to me, I was rude back, he was rude back. Now, that could happen. I'm not saying he's not a nice person. I don't know, maybe we just weren't on the same wavelength or something, I don't know. But you might meet someone like that in a place and the encounter might not be very good and might not be very nice. Right. Do you know what I mean? And I don't know what you do when that happens, but it could do. No harm done, but you might meet someone who is, they don't want you there, you're on their turf, they don't know what's going on, they wish you would leave and they want to get rid of you. And I mean, I may, I may have met situations like that, I can't really be sure. Maybe it's just in the imagination, I don't know. But I think it can happen like it does in normal life. Yeah, yeah, I think it can too. I know when I'm out with my investigation team, I always make a point of introducing each team member. I explain what we are doing and why we are there in that particular location. Yeah. Do you, I guess, I'm just guessing, do you do some sort of protection or do you yeah. do anything? Yeah. Do? yeah. That's something, for whatever reason, we've never done. I'm not quite sure why, but I've been with other groups occasionally where 
that has been done and I'm, I'm comfortable with it. What I would say, though, is if you're, I'm sure you'll, you'll understand this, that if you're not in a very good space personally, like if you say you've got a bad head cold or you're in a bad mood or you're a bit upset about something or you're just generally overworked and stressed, it's better to just not do the investigation. Great, great. Yeah. Um, like just bow out. I've I've done that once or twice because I'm I'm the supposedly the sort of group leader. I tend to take the lead. Right. But I do remember going on a couple of investigations where, frankly, I really didn't want to be there. I wasn't feeling that well, and it just didn't go well. Yeah. And I think I really shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have engaged with this while I was feeling like that. Yeah. Uh, it'd be better to just stay in the tea room and like man the video screens or something like that and don't actually go out and try and engage with anything because that's when it might go a bit pear-shaped for you. Oh, yeah, I agree. I absolutely agree. Attitude and energy you put out is really important. And if you're of the opinion that spirits are real and that they exist and if they are conscious and are aware, they are going to pick up on any energy you are putting out. That's always been my attitude as well. I agree with you on that. Are there any experiences that you and your team have had that really stood out for you? Yeah, funnily enough, you know, we've been doing, okay, the number of paranormal investigations we've done has probably fallen off a bit in the last five years because, frankly, it's harder to get them now. Yeah, it is. Wellington is like nobody will let you in anywhere anymore because of basically health and safety or the buildings are earthquake prone. They yeah. won't let you in without like two men in hard hats present at all moments or something like that. So we don't get the free reign of places that we used to, and most of the investigations we've done have been private houses and dwellings. Mm. And we don't talk about those ones publicly because it's someone's private house, so we don't put anything online about it. We just keep it between us and the people. Right. I'll talk about that one I mentioned later, though, because the people were actually cool with me talking about it. But the, the scariest thing that happened was we went to the old fever hospital on Mount Victoria in Wellington. It's kind of above Newtown. And this place, it does have a reputation and, you know, there's not many places that I've been to that I've really thought are kind of active, but this would this place would be one of them. It's now the SPCA. Right. And before, it's been derelict and empty for a long time, but for a while it was the Wellington Polytech Music School. And I know that when it was, you know, the students used to, like, rehearse up there at night and stuff, and a lot of them really, really didn't like it. Um, they didn't want to be there after hours. And there's a lot of accounts of like doors slamming and people on people's faces and stuff like that. You know, just, just strange things, strange noises. We've, we've done three investigations up there when it was an empty building. And we've done a couple more since it's been the SPCA. And, you know, there has been other investigations done by other groups um, as well up there. So it's still a place to go. On the south end of the site is a, a derelict, well, it's not derelict, it's a closed up part of the building, which is still a building site. And, you know, we've been in it briefly once during the day, but 
you're really not allowed to go in there because it it's just a, a health and safety hazard, right. which is unfortunate because that building, we uh, the first time we did an investigation at the fever hospital, the guy let us in there. I'm pretty sure he wasn't supposed to, but he did. So <laughs> we went in and we did our stuff. And, you know, we'd been there for eight or 10 hours or something and most people had gone home and we're back in there. It's about, I'm going to say about 1.30 in the morning by this stage. We're tired. We've done enough investigation. There's only three of us left standing. Everyone else has left. And we're sitting upstairs in the balcony thing talking about cars or something. It wasn't, we weren't, we lost interest in, in ghosts by this stage because nothing had really happened. But prior to that, I'd had a bit of a good go in the upstairs hallway of actually trying to kind of get attention. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I got a little bit more American and I was being a little bit more confrontational. Not as confrontational as some of those guys, but more than I usually am, right? Right. Trying to pull something out. And with me were Patrick and Rob. And Rob had had an experience in the building some like a decade earlier when he had been a security guard a bad experience where it's in the book, his fellow security guard, who was a big like Norwegian guy, huge guy, he just upped and fled and ran down the fire escape and was gone. And Rob kind of wondered why. And he think, well, if something scared him that much, I'd probably better leave as well. So he goes to leave. All right. And the door to the room that had the fire escape, which was the only way out of the top floor at the time, slammed right in his face, the door handle fell out. So he couldn't get out of the building. The downstairs was all boarded off with plywood and that, so there's no way out. So being Rob, he had a, a multi-tool on his belt and he managed to get the, the door handle open and out of the building. And he said that guy, the big Norwegian guy, he was terrified and he never spoke. He never said a thing about what it was that scared him. He just refused to talk about it. So Rob approached me and said oh you guys if you ever do an investigation there like can I come and he did so that was his first investigation with us so you know we're upstairs talking about cars we've lost interest and there's this mighty big bang and we could feel it through the floor like somebody really slamming a door hard and you could feel it coming up through the building we all kind of looked at each other thought and wonder what that was that was big so we go downstairs and we have a look around. And of course, we can't find anybody. And we had cameras, you know, we had surveillance cameras going. There's nobody on those. So there's nobody in the building. And, uh, okay, we figured out which door it probably was. It was the only door that was unlocked, which is the one we'd been using. But we better go check around outside. So we open the door, we go out. Patrick closes the door behind us. Does, doesn't lock it, but he closes it. And we get a few metres away, and behind us, this door bangs again just as hard, like this mighty big bang right right behind us. And we all kind of turn around and think, how did that happen? Because it had been windier early in the evening, but the wind had actually dropped. And it would have been a hell of a wind gust that would have banged this little door like that. It was only a small door, not a big heavy door. So... Um, I mean, it could have been some kind of freak gust that we didn't feel or something, but we thought it was maybe a person, you know, just playing around. So we looked around and we couldn't find anybody. There was nobody about, nobody showed up on, on our security cameras. So 
it remained a mystery and it was pretty unsettling. You know, it was it was scary. And actually we were we once Rob left because he had to get back home to his wife, just me and Patrick, we're actually a bit scared to go back in that building. You know, we had all our stuff in there, all our cameras that we'd set up and all that. But we actually didn't want to go back in. So we went like everywhere else just to kill the time. And eventually the security guards came back to lock the place up. And they said, oh, who let you in that building? You know, you're not really supposed to be in there. So, okay, we went in with them. <laughs> and we got, we packed our stuff up. We, we got exited real quick. And we left them to lock it up. It was not, nothing was getting us back in there without, you know, like four of us. And um, it was kind of funny. But, you know, security guards, they've got all the stories because they go up to these places at night and they see stuff and hear stuff and, you know, we've had pretty interesting stories about that place from the security guards as well, you know. So it's fairly lively, the whole place, and I think that nurse's home in particular. But you're not really allowed to go into it anymore. Um, still, I'd, I'd like to get back into there someday into a proper investigation. One thing we will not do is we don't do the kind of urban exploration thing of, like, climbing into places. Right. Don't do it. Um the only time we'll do an investigation is if it's either completely public land where anyone can go there or if it's private land, we only go with proper permission. We won't trespass. Right. I think all of the paranormal investigation groups hold to that because yeah. um, what you don't want is, like, if something happens, it tends to end up on the news. Right. And then it, it's a real bad look for everybody. Like you get, everyone gets tarred with the same brush. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So what I'm saying is, I've told you about this place. Don't go and break into it, you know? Right. Yeah, because um, it, it's dangerous, fire risk. Something goes wrong, you hurt yourself, you fall through a hole in the floor or something. You know, it's just a frigging great disaster that actually brings disrepute on everybody. And then like, Nobody's ever allowed in ever again. Correct. You know what I mean? I absolutely agree with you. Absolutely. Getting permission is paramount. You never, ever go into a place without proper permission. It's just not done. Yeah, for those reasons. And Like a vampire, you have to be invited. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see why that experience would have scared you. It would have scared me too, to be perfectly honest. I certainly wouldn't have wanted to go back in unless I had burly, well, drawn burly men around me either. The big guy showed up. We thought, well, we'll go in there for a few minutes, get our stuff, and we're gone, man. <laughs> the one thing I would say that what I just told you was probably about the single most unsettling thing that's ever happened to us on an actual investigation. People think sometimes because we're there, like, Maybe things are going to levitate and things are going to appear like they're doing the Ghostbusters movie, but honestly, that doesn't happen. If things do happen, they're usually pretty subtle. Right. You know, you get a sense of something or you, if something happens, you can't quite explain, but maybe it could be the building or it could be a draft of wind or something. You know, we haven't really had like really scary investigations where it's... Um, when we have, it's frankly probably because when we're a bit inexperienced and your imagination gets running away with you. Right. You know, in the morning when you really ought to be asleep and someone says there's a dark shadow in the corner, it looks like a man, and you get the chills. 
and you kind of see it as well, you know, it's, it's that power of suggestion thing. Yeah. We're kind of over that now. That doesn't happen so much because we're used to we're used to it, but we right. don't get affected by that power of suggestion quite as much as we used to. So one of the things I really liked about your and Joe's book was the way that you laid out how you do investigations, the tools you use, particularly with the photography, things to look for, things to disregard in an investigation. With photography, I mean, my, most of what I spend my time doing now, I get these emails from like all over the world, right? photographs and sometimes videos attached, and people were asking me, is this paranormal? Can you explain it? this happened, we got this photo. And I find that really interesting. And I get a number of these per week. And, you know, I, I was sitting down between getting home and um, doing this, just going over a couple of emails and replying. And, you know, I'm going to say because I know how photography works and I keep trying to update myself with that as technology changes, right. a lot of things in photographs can be explained in terms of photography and they can also be explained in terms of the way we interpret photographs like when there are ambiguous and things in the photograph people will see things in there for various reasons depending on where they're coming from spiritually or personally right now i don't want to go into detail on the photography stuff because this is a talky thing rather than a picture thing but yeah yeah, yeah. I've, I've talked about photographs a few times in public and put up slides and you can sort of see what the stuff is and we can talk about it but I'll tell you I've learned to tread more carefully because one I'm never absolutely sure right so I never I almost never say this is definitely the case there are a couple of things that I've honestly I've had so many of them that when you see yet another one I always look carefully mm. but Sometimes I say, look, I'm, I'm pretty sure that it's this. It's a right. caused by the sun. You can see the sun. You can see the little green orb. That's, that's caused by the sun shining into the lens or, or something like that. But mostly I leave it open because, hey, I wasn't there. Yeah. I don't know all the context of the photo being taken and what else was happening when it was taken. I can't see the place and I can't be there to look, look for myself. So I just leave it open and say, look, here's a possible photographic reason for what's going on here. But there could be other reasons for it that are kind of hiding behind the natural explanation. Right. At that point, I'd say it's very important to think that just because a natural explanation exists, it doesn't mean that's absolutely the only explanation that's possible. Things in photos can be caused by physics, you know, by the way cameras work. But at another level, it can just be that device's way of pointing at something. Mm. I, I don't really, I'm not really a believer in Ouija boards, but if you think about how a Ouija board points to stuff, right. maybe a photograph can point to things and maybe the ability of a photograph to point to things can be manipulated in much the way that sound voices can be recorded on electronic recording devices. Uh, the camera is just another device and it can be manipulated in various ways is what I'm saying. 
I really like the way you explained that. That's a good, clear explanation. And I like the way you think about that too. That to me says heaps about you and about your integrity as an investigator actually, that you're prepared to look at angles like that, yeah. When people send a photo, look, even if I think I've seen it a hundred times before, I still have a real good look at it. Mm. You know, it's not, oh, it's just another one of those dismissed. Mm. No, I, look at, I open the photo up and I look at it carefully and I try to couch my reply in terms of, look, at it. this is a, probably what's going on. But okay. then people don't always tell you everything at the start. So you get this photo and, the, and it says, oh, what do you think's happened here? And it'll be like a dust orb over someone's head, say, right? right. So I send them an email back explaining how dust orbs occur. And then they email me back and they say, well, that's all very interesting, but the guy in the photo who's got the dust orb over his head died like two hours after the photo was taken and that's the last time we saw him and he drowned in a river. And you think, crikey, I've really put my foot in my mouth there, haven't I? Yeah. You know, it's like this This has happened several times and, you know, it's taken several times for me to learn to watch what I say because you can just write something off of, oh, it's just another dust orb, you know, it's dust in front of the camera, the flash reflects off it, blah, blah, blah. Here's a couple of diagrams to explain it. And then you find out the story and you think, well, that's really sad. Maybe it was connected. Maybe it was trying to say something or maybe it was just a complete coincidence. I don't know. But the point is I don't know. And you've just got to be careful because we don't, know what the circumstances were you know it's just like if someone comes to you and they're really rude for whatever reason in real life you just don't know what's going on in their life you know you have no idea and if you're rude back again it's not very helpful because you know they're having a bad time for a reason and we don't if they're a stranger we don't know what that reason is it's the same thing with anything that you encounter where you don't know the full story whether it's normal or perhaps paranormal, or perhaps, you know, from the other side. We don't have all the information. We don't exactly know what's going on. Right. And I think we just have to tread quite carefully. We might offend the living. We might offend, you know, those that aren't living. We've, we've got to be, like you said at the very start, we've got to be respectful. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I really like your attitude, James. I think that's really awesome. Have you, while we're on the subject of photographs, have you or your team ever caught anything, any photograph that you would, that you couldn't explain away? Tell you what, we've taken a lot of photos and videos and things, and the answer to that is no. And sometimes it's just bad luck because quite often when things are happening, like that door banging I was talking about earlier, we just didn't happen to have a camera pointing at it. You know, we had cameras and things everywhere else, except there. Yeah. And another time, we've just finished packing up, put everything back in its cases, and something goes down, you know, and you think, well, we missed that, didn't we? Because you just, you haven't got the right thing pointing in the right direction at the right time. And uh, we haven't been lucky enough to sort of, like if a door's banged or something else has happened or some strange noise, we just haven't been lucky enough to, to kind of catch it. We've caught, caught the odd sound, but nothing really tangible. Oh, having said that, 
no, just a minute. It's not in the book, but subsequent, subsequently we did an investigation in the what was then the Wellington Museum of City and Sea. It's now called Wellington Museum. And it has a um, nautical kind of theme overall because Wellington being a port. We were in the boardroom and the area just outside the boardroom and we did an EVP session and Helen did it. And if anyone in our group can make this stuff happen, it's kind of her. Um, she's more attuned than the rest of us. And we had two recorders. We had two voice recorders, which I'd synchronized. So we, we go out in the, the kind of foyer area of the boardroom and we do the EVP session with two recorders. Then we moved through into the boardroom and I left one of the recorders out in the outside door and the other one we brought in with us. And Helen's asking for, you know, can you knock on the table or not make a knocking sound if you, you know, for yes, whatever it was. And we can hear this very faint knocking. We're all in this big boardroom, big meeting room, with very faint knocking. And she asked a few questions and we heard a bit of faint knocking. So that's really interesting. And when I got home, I, well, maybe the next day, I listened to the recordings and the recorder that we left back in the other room, the knocking was really clear. So it wasn't coming from the room we were in, it was coming from the room we'd just left. Mm. And because I was able to synchronise the sound of the two recorders, you got Helen asking questions in one room and the knocking in the other room. And, you know, I transcribed it, I wrote it all out and I put X's for knocks. And frankly, it looked pretty good. However, there were a few random knocks that didn't correspond to any questions. Now, if you ignored those, it looked quite good. You know, can you knock on the table, please? And there's a little delay and you hear a knock. And, you know, if that's you there, can you do it again, please? And you hear another couple of knocks. Stuff like that. It's really good. You know, it's what you really want to happen. But I still don't entirely believe it. Like, we haven't put it online. I've talked about it at a couple of public talks and I've played the recording, you know, to the audience, but I haven't haven't put it online because can't really verify it. Mm-hmm. And I want to repeat it. I want to go back there and try it again. Right, right. I have been back there one time since with another group and I hung around in the area where we recorded the knocking while they were doing a session in the next room. and didn't hear anything I didn't record anything I don't think it's a building sound I've been there half a dozen times and we never heard anything like it before and there are plenty of sightings in the area of the building that we were in a number of people have seen a number of things including a full apparition one of the staff saw so it's an active area of the building and what I really want to do is go back there and try it again oh yes but i've kind of lost my contact at that place like you know you have someone there that is you know is letting you in and staying after hours and stuff and we don't have that anymore so plus all the osh kind of stuff's coming since then so they won't really let us run around in there after after a while so um we've got the opportunity to go back and try and repeat it but i really would like to because if we can get it again and we can be a little bit more certain that you know what it is and it's not coming from 
plumbing or some other weird thing that we we couldn't, then that would be really good. It's just on one attempt. It's pretty good recording, but I'm just not quite convinced. Right, right. I'm not going to claim it as paranormal because it might not be. Right. Oh, very cool. So where do you see you and your investigation team going from here, James? We're trying to kick it back into life a bit. We've got, we've kind of found a, a few younger people that are interested because all the original team, we're all either middle-aged or we're pushing middle-aged and people have <laughs> you know, kind of jobs gone a bit upscale and, you know, there's just less time. Yes. Yes. So found some some new people that hopefully can breathe a bit of life back into it and actually go out and get us into some places because I'm, I'm just really not very good at that. Oh, yeah. I have the same issue, James. It's like, and it's really hard when, like, everybody has their life outside the team and, you know, things get busy and finding places is really hard. And also, of course, New Zealand's so small. Then having money to go to go to places is an issue too. We used to drive up country a lot more, but one, I don't have so much time, and two, it's actually pretty expensive. Like the yeah. petrol is cheap now. Yeah. Like just we drove up to Partia last about two weekends ago, and I mean Wellington to Partia is back. It's frankly about seventy or eighty dollars worth of petrol. Yeah, plus the rest of it. It's a three, three and a half hour drive each way, something like that. It was a real nice drive and we really enjoyed it and I sort of missed doing those kind of road trips. We used to do them, you know, every month or two. We hadn't done one for ages. Do you find, James, that sometimes when you walk into a place you're investigating, you can instantly have a feel of your of the place, like you can feel if something feels off, if something bad happened there, that sort of thing. Have you found that? You walk in and you think, nah, this this is this place is wrong. There's something something bad in here, something's happened. And you know, you might find that someone's committed suicide or something in that room, something right. coming over from it. I don't always trust my own personal feelings because they can be affected by how your day's been going. But oh, great, great. you know, what we do is we try not to set up too many expectations, right? So if we go to a place, I mean, I might know what has been reported and I might know some of the history and someone else in the group might know. But we make sure we've got one or two people going in cold. Right. And we just, I, I will just say to them, look, you two, just go around the building and just spend some time you know, and just come back and say if you notice or feel anything. And, you know, they, these team members will not have any expectation that, you know, there's a red lady being seen on the stairs or anything like that. They don't, they don't know any of that. Right. And I also say, look, don't go research this place. You know, like don't start looking online and finding out the history because we just want you to go in just neutral don't go around with the people that are there because they will take you around and tell you this or that happened. Just right. go in and just spend half an hour or an hour getting a feel for the whole place. And then we'll talk about it later. 
that's the best way to do it, I reckon. And I always work like that, unless my team needs to know specifically for health and safety reasons, I won't tell them. If there's something dangerous, it might be a different story, but that's what we do anyway. We, we at least, you know, half the team or whatever will go in with no preconception so that if they do notice anything and you think, well, that's real interesting because that's the same room that this has been seen or that's been seen. And we'll, we'll let it go for a while and then we'll sort of later in the evening say, well, actually, here's, here's the information we have and here's the historical information. And, you know, that's really interesting that you sense that because it lines up with this or it doesn't. Right. That, that's kind of how we come at it, trying to be fairly objective, not everybody expecting that a thing's going to happen. And that way, if it does happen, we're adding something to the story. You know, right. we've got something to bring to it, I guess. Yeah, that's really awesome. Your book is a very good read, and I do recommend to listeners that they check it out for themselves. Don't just take my word for it. We're lucky with the book because it came out of, like, we got on TV one night, and then this publisher rang me from Random House of at work the next day, and they said, oh, we saw you on TV, and we've been following you guys for a while, and do you want to write a book for us? Wow. And that actually was pretty amazing in itself so I'm pretty pleased with the way it went and we had the benefit of a professional editor and you know design so it was done professionally and yeah there's a couple of little typos and mistakes here and there one of them's mine for writing someone's name down wrong sorry um you know who you are but I'm pretty happy with it still as I said I don't I haven't Although I've learned more, I haven't changed my mind. Right. I don't think that anything we wrote, I don't want to pull any of it back or retract it. I just think, yeah, okay, that was interesting. We know a bit more about that now, but I still stand by what we wrote at the time. Right. Yeah, which I'm, I'm happy with. Yeah. So, you know, we don't know everything, but we're just at the – the bottom of the hill you know looking up the slope and there's always more to learn too but I think the book is great and I think it gives anybody who's looking at considering getting into this area it gives them a good base of knowledge to work from good thank you I, yeah. I would say that I didn't really start the paranormal group till I was in my 40s and maybe that's kind of old but I think if you're a young person in your teens or 20s that's cool but I wouldn't have liked to, I mean, I don't know if there really was paranormal investigation when I was that age, but I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have been mature enough or stable enough emotionally to do it. Some people were more worldly and mature than I was at that age. Yeah. But I think you need to be pretty kind of grounded and I think fairly emotionally grounded as well. If you're flying off in all directions, it's not a good thing to get into. Yeah, in your sort of teens and 20s, us middle-class kids that nothing much ever really happened to, we didn't grow up very fast, you know? Right. So um, I wasn't mature enough at that age to start to deal with other people's paranormal experiences. Just couldn't have handled it. Yeah. But yeah. not saying that somebody else couldn't. I just, I just couldn't myself at that age. 
right and it's very individual isn't it but as a rule of thumb most people in their 20s are just too busy focused on other things yeah (laughs) they don't pull themselves away from their phones for long enough (laughs) (laughs) that's true you've got to be in the moment you know you've got to be in the world and aware you can't be too distracted you know you've got to be open and engaged with what is around you Absolutely, because when you're doing an investigation, you have to have all your senses available. Yeah, absolutely. And also for me, I can't speak for you, but for me, I have to be aware of what my body is feeling at any given time as well. And also so I can uh, keep an eye on my team members and make sure that they're okay too. Yeah, that's really important. Yeah. Because it's all, I mean, your body and your mind are all, they're already one thing, aren't they? Mm-hmm. If you're not feeling good or you're too tired or you're unwell, just leave it till another day, you know? Yes, absolutely. Well, look, I think we might call it a close here because I'm aware you've had a really long day and it's getting late. I've really enjoyed our conversation, James. Thank you so very much for joining us this episode. I appreciate your time immensely. It's been awesome. I enjoyed the the talk, um, Marianne. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. this episode, we've talked with James about his book, Spooked, Exploring the Paranormal in New Zealand, which is available from Amazon. We've discussed how he got into the field of paranormal research and investigation. James has shared some of his experiences with us tonight, and this hopefully has given all of you a glimpse into the world of paranormal investigations, at least a tiny weeny bit anyway. If any of you have any questions for James or myself, comments that you would like to make or experiences that you might like to share with myself and with my audience, then please don't hesitate to email me at shadowlands at yahoo.com or if you're a member of Anchor at anchor.fm, then you can leave me a voice message via their platform, which I could include in an upcoming episode. If you enjoyed this episode, then please leave a positive rating and a written review on your chosen podcasting platform. Who knows, you may hear your review read out at the end of one of these episodes, like this one from the Podbean platform from CMR5FS, who says, Essential listening for those interested in the paranormal, professionally produced and extremely informative. Let Mary Ann take you on a journey through the Shadowlands. And, of course, so you don't miss out on our next episode, make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. This podcast is on all free podcasting platforms and soon to be available from iHeartRadio as well. If you don't have a smartphone, then you can listen to episodes from the podcast website www.walkingtheshadowlands.com For those hearing impaired, there is a full written transcript of each episode on the website so you don't miss out at all. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your workmates about our show. Encourage them to listen and to subscribe also. The more the merrier. Also, 
please consider supporting this show on Patreon.com. You can check out the link on our website. Check out our Facebook page, Walking the Shadowlands, and like and follow it for hints of our upcoming episodes. Thank you so much for listening. Tonight, today, wherever you are in this beautiful world of ours, We'll see you this time next week. Thanks for listening. 